Welcome to Away From The Keyboard. We give you a glimpse into the lives, interests, and tech behind today's technologists. Please join our hosts, Cecil Phillip and Richie Rump, as we get away from the keyboard. Welcome to Away From The Keyboard, where technologists tell their stories of how they started, how they grew, how they learned, and how they unwind. My name's Richie Rump, and joining me is my co-host, Cecil Phillip. How are you doing, Cecil? What's going on, Richie? Doing pretty good, man. It feels good to be back. Oh, yeah, man. Happy New Year to you. Yeah, Happy New Year to you. It's been a long time since we've done an episode, man, but you know, it's 2018 and we're back to it. Yep. And uh, I'm super stoked. And um, you know what? 2017 may not have been the best year around the world, but judging how it ended for me, it may not be too bad because I picked up a Switch for Christmas and I've been playing uh, Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild literally nonstop since about mid-November. So I heard that was supposed to be a really good game, man. Like, How have you been liking it so far? Oh my gosh, it's amazing. You know, I've been a huge Zelda fan ever since the first Legend of Zelda, you know, broke out. And I've literally played, um, maybe not beaten, but I've played at least every Zelda game that has come out, except, I believe, one. Huge fan of the whole series. And this one just breaks the mold out of everything it is. It's, it's an open world. If you could see it, you can get to it. You can pretty much do whatever you want. You wouldn't be a colossal jerk around. You could do that. If you want to um, get every little secret, you can do that, or you could just speed your way straight to the castle and try to beat Ganon and and end the game in 20 minutes. You can do that. So um, I've been having a blast with it. It did win a game of the year at the at the uh, the Game Awards, and it was so well deserved. It is so well done. And I actually I had beat the game, and then I went back and started you know trying to find all the secrets that um, I missed the first time around. So uh, there's more content out there for me. They just released two DLCs, and so I haven't gotten to that yet. But I've put in a, a good 70, 75 hours in this stupid game, and uh, it's been worth it. It's been an amazing experience. Nice. Everybody that I talk to always has like all these good things to say about the game, and you know they really love the Switch. And it keeps me, it always reminds me that I have a Switch in my closet in a box that I have yet <laughs> oh, to no. open. Oh, no. Do you remember? Yeah. I don't know if we remember. The, we, we talked about it on the show like yes, a while ago did. when I first we got did. the Switch. So it's and still in the closet. With as much traveling as you do, you really should travel with it. It, it, it is a, it's, it's a great system. They've got some good games out there for it. Um, Super Mario Odyssey should be like right up your alley. Yeah, dude, open it up. Let's, let's, get, let's get to work. Yeah, so I'm, I'm actually going to London um, in a couple of weeks. So that's obviously going to be a very long flight from Florida. So I'm thinking that might be a good time for me to you know, open it up and take it on the plane with me. So I might do that. Yeah, get it done, man. So what you been up to over your break? Recently, I just signed up for the Spartan Race. So that's the, the Reebok, Whew. you know, eight mile obstacle course, you know, running and you know, all that type of stuff. And so I decided to start off my year with, you know, really focusing on my health and nutrition. So I've just been juicing since the beginning of the year, you know, fruits, vegetables, mangoes, apples, ginger, cucumbers, carrots, and like everything. I'm just been juicing it. And, you know, for the first couple of days, it was horrible. <laughs> like I, I wanted a burger. I wanted to go eat pizza. I wanted like... <laughs> you know, steak or some chick. Like, I wanted to eat food, right? Um, but I could say, I, so it's been about a week now, and I feel actually pretty good. Like, my energy's up. You know, I was feeling a little bit bloated, you know, coming off of Christmas and eating all of that cake <laughs> and other fruits. <laughs> 
but no, I feel pretty good now. Um, you know, I've been back in the gym doing a lot of cardio, and so right now I'm just I'm just you know working out, preparing for Spartan Man. So the juicing was pretty cool. It was definitely hard. I'm gonna see if I could work it in into some regular schedule. So maybe you know once a month I'll do like a week of juicing. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, it's been pretty good so far. Wow, man, you're better than man than I because Spartan race and juicing and we tried juicing once and it's, it is not for me. And it's, it's like, cause chicken doesn't taste right when it's in the juicer. <laughs> it just, there's <laughs> something wrong with the chicken. It just, it doesn't feel right. You know, you know, it's no, funny that you mentioned over the holidays, you know, I had, I had tweeted like my plate for Noche Buena and it was like yuca, black beans and rice. It had pork, <laughs> it had turkey, you know, it was just like the, the total cuban meal that, that you would have for new year's or uh, christmas eve man i'm sorry you're gonna miss all of that my apologies dude <laughs> well my juicing is done so this week i'm gonna eat regular food yeah, oh I good was only ju- i was only juicing for a week um, good so, so I'm, I'm i'm gonna enjoy like a really nice steak tonight i definitely <laughs> tell you that <laughs> yes or, or a nice fillet of fish with a nice you know uh, maybe a shiraz or a mall back there and and you'll be all right you'll be good yeah, exactly. There we go. So we got some events coming up, do we? We do. We have some events coming up. Like I mentioned a little while ago, I'm going to be in London from January 26th to 27th at this event called AfroFest in London. I've never been to this event before, but it looks pretty cool. It's an event or it's really like a technology festival put on for people of color, for people of African and Caribbean heritage. It's going to be a lot of talks, workshops and that type of thing. So I'm going to go and do a talk with one of my teammates, Jasmine. Um, we're going to talk about open source and Microsoft. And then we're going to just kind of, you know, just take in the city and take in some of the other talks. And, you know, I think it's going to be pretty cool. Yeah, it, I, I've always wanted to get to London. I will get there. Trust me, as much British television that I watch, I will eventually get to London. Uh, but, you know, maybe not this year, maybe a year after that. So I know we have another event coming up pretty soon as well. Yeah, so South Florida Code Camp, we talk about this every year. Every you know, it's, year. It's, it is the event where I guess you could say like we really started this podcast and we started recording and going out and meeting folks and kind of getting to this done. So, so this event obviously has a very special place for us and for our show. Um, so this is going to be at February 10th at Nova Southeastern University. Again, it's a whole day of, you know, speakers and tracks, you know, different topics from web development, JavaScript, the cloud, databases, mobile development, whatever you want to know, you want to, whatever you want to learn about. You obviously get fed and you get the opportunity to talk to a lot of, you know, folks in the industry that might, you know, learn know, know about something that you might be interested in. So definitely come, definitely check it out. Again, that's February 10th, Nova Southeastern University, and that's the South Florida Code Camp. So who we talked to today? So today we're talking to Ian Felton. Ian has more than 20 years of professional experience writing software for organizations such as NASA, Mayo Clinic, Thomson Reuters, and a lot more. He was also a published author of Haibun, prosemitic Japanese form of writing, mainly centered around travel and journeys to far off places. In addition to writing and wildlife photography, he runs a nonprofit organization which puts musical instruments into the hands of children that need them. He also practices meditation, Chinese, and several Chinese martial arts. This episode was recorded on July 31st, 2017. And now, our conversation with Ian Felton. And now, away from the keyboards, feature conversation. Ian, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate you giving us a little bit of time to come in and talk to you. My pleasure. So there's a lot of things I want to talk to you about. But first, why don't we start off with you just telling us a little bit about yourself, who you are, and you know how exactly did you get started in technology to begin with? So I will go back to not too far, but I'm from West Virginia. 
And sometimes I like to leave a little pause there for laughter just in case um, I don't hear any. So I'll just, I'll proceed. But so no. I. <laughs> Why is that? I'm weeping on the inside. What's wrong with West Virginia? N- not, nothing is, but sometimes for some reason, when I tell people I'm from West Virginia, there'll be like chuckles and things like that. So I've just learned to give people, you know, three or four seconds to get the laughter out. And then I, I continue from there on. Isn't isn't that because some 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 folks it's deemed backwater and siblings marrying siblings? There you go. Now now you're getting it. No, it's a it is it is funny just how often people will find it it's appropriate to you know make some some sort of uh, dumb joke or whatever. Which I've heard it all, so it's not a big deal. That's that's right. Kind of kind of kind of make make fun of that and. Um, give give people that that time to get that out of their system. Really? Do you get that pretty often? I'd say about fifty percent, fifty percent of the time. It's not not as much as I used to. Um, I think I think society overall is changing a little bit more and becoming more aware of um, that sort of thing. But it still happens. I think it it happens more often than what you would su- uh, suspect. I definitely realize it's it's all about them and it doesn't have anything to do with me. So I just I kind of give them their space to be however they're going to be and that sort of thing. But enough of that. So I actually did graduate from West Virginia University. I started off in computer science and I had been in to music since I was about 15. I'd been in bands playing bass, guitar, and that sort of thing, and just had some really great experiences with some really awesome friends that are still my lifelong friends to this day. And actually just got done booking, I think, my third trip to go see one of my friends this year um, from that time in my life. But um, after a couple couple years of computer science, I was just really way more into music than anything else. So I changed majors a few times and was spending way more time playing in the band and going from town to town playing shows. I was in kind of a a jam band, a Southern rock jam band at this point, like playing a lot of like Almond Brothers type of music, even though it was an original band, we recorded a couple CDs during that time. And, you know, finally, after a couple of years of that, I realized, you know, I do need to graduate. I haven't been taking very many classes. So um, one of my friends at the time who I was in a different band with, he was a geography major and we he saw this trip called GeoTrek, which was for four credits, you could go out to California and tour the Sierra Nevadas and learn about the geology of the Sierra Nevadas and get four credits, do it for two weeks over the summer. So went and did oh, that. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah, it was awesome. Death Valley, Yosemite, Lake Tahoe. We did some snowboarding while we were there and rock climbing and it was just eye-opening. It was actually the first time I'd flown. I hadn't flown before that. So um, it, it opened up my eyes in a, in a lot of ways. So that class ended and we could either do a written report or we could do a website. And, you know, I was a computer geek. I mean, I was still, I'd been putting computers together since I was 15. Um, this was back when, you know, people really didn't even have home computers. There was... Um, you know, started on DOS 5 and um, worked a little bit. My dad had a Unix machine too, but we had an, an XT. So 
Um, XT with a monochrome computer, DOS 5 installed on it. But that's how I, I got started and kind of continued on that. So then when I built this website for GeoTrek, the assistant professor, he was a content writer on a NASA project um, about 10 miles down the road. Um, West Virginia has a little high-tech consortium just south of West Virginia University. So he showed my website to the people there, and I got an interview and got the internship. And I worked there for about a year writing CGI, Ben, Perl scripts, and JavaScript. I mean, I was doing – this is maybe not a surprise, but I was doing – you know, dynamic JavaScript websites in 1999 um, with um, CGI Ben Perl script backends. And there was, there was this oh, guy, yeah. he had a site called DHTML Guru. And I mean, and he was doing way more amazing stuff. Yeah, I remember stuff. that site. Oh, it was awesome. I mean, he was doing amazing stuff in 99. Just there was no libraries. There was no nothing. And he just had some mind-blowing stuff. And it was it still impresses the how out of me. Like you worked at some interesting companies like NASA, Mayo Clinic. You know, like what was that experience like for you? So it was funny. I mean, it, I'm sure it was not a very important project within NASA. It was a it was a educational site. So it didn't have anything to do with, you know, rockets going to Mars or anything like that. But, um, but it was still, it was really cool just to, at the end of my project, I had to get on the phone with several NASA solar scientists because they were the ones that were using my app and talk to them about it. So even though they weren't using my software to launch rockets, I had to talk to the owners of this app. I was an intern about it. And some of them were very nice, but you could tell some of them were just, there was, there were perfectionists in every aspect. And there was no consideration of the fact that this was the very first web app that I had ever made in my life. And she was very, very brutal with some aspects of my app where some of the other solar scientists were just like, but yeah, but I mean, they were really trying to smooth over what she was saying. I mean, she was saying things like, this is not good. <laughs> and so another scientist right. with solar scientists would jump in and be like, but you know, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's the first app that he's made and you know, it's, it's, it's good. It's, you know, for that, it's good. And like really trying to, to smooth her out, but I didn't take it. I, I wasn't, um, I wasn't disappointed. I was still very proud of the software that I had made. Cause I, again, I, I kind of picked up that she was just kind of an outlier in the group of solar scientists and how she was reacting mm -hmm. to trying it out. But, you know, it was, it was, pretty intense. Just, you know, here's NASA solar scientists and little old me who, you know, <laughs> didn't even finish my computer science degree, who had been spending the larger part of the last four years touring around the East coast playing music, but, you know, jumped back on to the software game. And it was just, it was really cool. And, and, you know, I saw my name printed up. They had like a, a, a guide for this educational project called live from the sun. And it was really well done and educators were using it in their classrooms and, 
my name was printed in the guide and I, I still have it just because it was such a point of pride <laughs> for me. I mean, it was my very first project out of out of school. So that was just it was really, really fortunate to have had that opportunity at that time in my life. I was responsible not only now for these apps, but I was responsible for an IIS server and I was responsible for a Unix server and at NASA. <laughs> and it was just me who had just been an intern for <clears throat> 10 months. And I'm like, how did this happen and what is going on here? And I remember one day we did, one of the machines got hacked into I put the TCP wrappers on it. That's all I know. It had the TCP wrappers. Not sure how we got hacked, but some guy came barging in from another room. He's like, where's the terminal? Where's the terminal? And I'm like, it's over there. He's like, we've been hacked. And I'm like, cool. Cause I, I didn't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> this might not be a good follow-up question, but I was going to ask you, you know, with, with you, not finishing your degree and and now you're working for NASA, right? Like they, you must have felt a tremendous amount of pressure to perform and to make sure that things are working. How did you handle that? How did you kind of keep your composure and just kind of get the job done? Well, so I graduated in I graduated in English and I had a a, a focus on creative writing. So I had I had a degree and really yeah. it was just confidence because I had been confidence and enthusiasm. It was just my excitement. Like I didn't, I was so excited about what I was doing. I didn't really stop to think about those other things or those other aspects. And maybe, and I think, you know, I grew up in the country and I didn't really, I guess you could say I was ignorant about a lot of the things that people held up as being important and sort of those sorts of pressures. I never really felt at my school. It was a small school in the country and people didn't really, I guess we really didn't even talk or, or think about things that way. And let me ask you a question, Ian, do you spend a lot of time writing software today still, or, or are you more focused on some other things? Oh, I'm focused on a few things. I still write software. I'm the fun things that I've been doing. I've been doing some Alexa, uh, work. So definitely have written. written oh, that sounds Landis. cool written a few lambdas and um, I have a couple of Alexa skills that I put up this year. So that's what I've been dabbling in this year. I don't spend as much time knowing that as I used to just because my I'm very curious and I'm very much love learning about everything. Sure. And I've I've Got a few things that I spend a lot of time on besides technology. A few things like, for instance, writing books, right? Writing books, for sure. I'm also getting a master's in psychology and counseling. And I've been, yeah. And then I've been practicing three different Chinese martial arts under one system for the past almost seven years. And then I also uh, study Chinese language. I do that three three days a week with a teacher, and then you know study on on my own. But I I definitely have a lot lot going on. So let's talk about the books. I, I, <laughs> Richie's like, wow, there's so much cool stuff to talk about. <laughs> I want to start talking about the book. 
You have a book that's out right now. It's on uh-huh. Amazon, and I'm sure it's on some other places, called The Coding Samurai. Yep. So, so you're already a published author. Tell me, why is it that you decided to write this book? And tell us a little bit what this book is about. So it must have been a little over two years ago. I bought a book called The Code of the Samurai, which is the Bushido Shoshinshu. It's a translation of the actual samurai code, which I was just reading as part of my studies. I study a lot of Eastern philosophy and Western philosophy too. So lots of philosophy. Um, but I just okay. finished that book and each chapter follows a certain theme like um, family histories, which would be the family history of the Lord that the samurai would be in service to and so on and so forth. And so I, as I read each chapter in the Code of the Samurai, I just felt like so much of the ethical content was very applicable to IT and saw many gaps in, um, you know, not only others, but myself and just saw how much I could apply this code. It's not just for martial arts, it's, you know, about living your life. But in, in particular, I saw very specific ways that it could apply to an attitude to carry at work. And so initially, I started writing some blog posts that were essays. Each essay followed a theme that was in, um, kind of matched, well, exactly matched one of the chapters in the Bushido. I think almost all of them I found relevant. There might have been four or five that I just couldn't find a real great connection to IT, so I, I dropped them. But essentially, they all started as essays. And then while I felt like the essays were compelling, I'm like, I, I, my, my, like I said, my, my degrees in English and I focused on creative writing and I've written a lot. I've written, um, poetic form called Haibun, which is a Japanese form, which you're getting a theme now of my interest in, um, that sort of thing. But I really wanted to write another sci-fi novel. My first sci-fi novel I wrote really sucked. And it was horrible. The idea was good, but just the, it was just awful. Um, and I wanted to do another one. So I started thinking about how I could weave this um, book into these essays into a sci-fi novel. And so I thought about that for a while and I came up with how I was going to go about doing that. And then I also through talking with people and having people read samples, I realized, you know, I really need to get some actual history, some samurai history into this book. So the essays, I found a way to break them up to where I took the, the three most important parts of the, um, the essays and left them intact and then the rest of it, I turned into samurai historical fiction. So I researched actual samurai and I found characters whose story I felt I could create a narrative that would 
follow these themes that would follow history as we know it and would match the theme of each chapter in the book. So as Artemis, the protagonist, is going through his near future sci-fi world, he's reading a book that his professor gave him called The Coding Samurai. And that book is what initially started as these essays that I wrote. And so the first part of it is the historical samurai fiction where things are unfolding. And then after that is commentary from his professor, which is sort of the remnants of what started off as those essays. You mentioned a little bit about Mahai uh, Bun. Tell us a little bit more about that and you know what exactly... You know, like, how did you really get into starting to write, um, you know, for, for that type of literature? I'm trying to pinpoint the exact moment I started writing it, but, but Haibun is a, it's a Japanese form of poetry that was started, uh, it was attributed to Basho, who I think it was late 1700s or early 1800s, but dates might be a little fuzzy there, but a couple hundred years ago, he... Um, is attributed with creating this form. He was a traveler, and as during his travels, he he wrote these poems. And essentially, the form of the poem is a section of prose. It's it's characterized by very brief sentences, maybe not even, maybe even sentence fragments, but there's sort of an, an, an urgency to the prose. It's very, I don't want to say fast paced because it's not, it, it probably is fast paced, but it's more about an efficiency of language with the prose. And then mm -hmm. when, when, when the writer is done with the section of prose, they conclude with a haiku. And, you know, the, the haiku, the purpose of the haiku isn't to repeat what was in the prose, but it's to create a revelation to provide the reader with some new information about what had been explained in the section of prose. So I, I just, I thought it was awesome. So I started studying it, started writing it. I started submitting my po my poems to... It was, it's called Contemporary High Bun and tried and tried and tried and finally got a couple published. A couple of them got selected for the print anthology where they take, you know, a smaller section um, from the year and, and print them. I don't think they're doing that anymore, but they still are doing Contemporary High Bun online. And I just, I love the form. I still love the form. I just, I think it's really, really interesting in that how it relates to travel. I'm a traveler and I love traveling. So I would find myself writing high bun as I traveled, just like Basho. So, uh, you know, not to pull this away from this, but, you know, it seems odd to me to uh, that you would write code and then write English because, so many of us developers are so bad at <laughs> writing. Just look at our documentation and see how great that is. <laughs> sure. Right? Um, so how does how does that work when you're writing code and then you have to switch gears and then you're writing a novel? And what are the similarities and kind of what are the differences between writing a book and um, writing code? So I think they, they can both be creative 
processes and they can also be sort of drudgery, right? Like I, I know if, if, if someone tasked me with writing documentation, I would, I would look at that as, as drudgery and be like, this is not fun. I don't want to do it. I want someone else to do it. And it would be very painful for me to just think that I'm going to spend the next few hours documenting this code. But then, you know, then there'd be the Zen part of me that would be like, okay, you need to stay in the moment and tap into the creativity and make it as creative as possible and, and do it well. Um, but I think that when, when you're writing code purely creatively, like you come up with your own product idea, which, you know, I've, um, written many apps on my own, just ideas that I have. And, and that's very similar to the process of writing a novel in that both of those experiences for me, I want to have, and this is totally my, just, I'm sure a huge part of it is just the way that I'm wired, but I, I want to be in solitude. I don't really want a lot of other people around me because when I'm inspired, I just want to blow through stuff. I don't want to hash it out by talking about all kinds of stuff. It's like, I have all these ideas. I'll sit there, you know, for 12 hours and just write code, write code, write code. And then, you know, then maybe talk about it with some other people. But it's like, I, I, I just, I want to be kind of in my own little bubble. And then similarly, like when I wrote the novel, it was at the end of a contract and I just said, I'm going to take a couple months before I look for my next contract and just get the first draft of this novel written. And it was just such a wonderful time and I can't wait to do it again. I mean, do, do you find that the processes are very similar between writing code and writing a book? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you have a, you have a vision and an idea of what is going to to be there at the end, you know, so the, there's, there's features of code and there's features of a book. So they're, they're different in the sense that a story traditionally follows an arc called the hero's journey, which has been written to death by script writers, playwriters, you know, novelists, et cetera, et cetera. You kind of need to learn that to be a storyteller and then once you have a pretty decent understanding of that, you there's definitely a lot of ways that you can vary it. Where I think for software, it's it's definitely much more about how it functions. So you, you have different. There's 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 a different conceptualization of what you're making like you're you're following a, a different pattern with a story you, you definitely are doing something like the hero's journey where with software it's more like these are the functions that i'm going to give this this is the experience of functions and features that i'm going to give to people i mean you're not doing the hero's journey with software now that being said how people experience software could be very much like the hero's journey they cross the point of no return where they've subscribed to your software as a service and then after they realize it's an utter piece of crap they have utter despair and they feel like there's no hope but then somehow they get a great tech person online and then all the problems are solved and now their photo has been uploaded and they got ten thousand and fifty eight likes 
but that's how someone experiences it, not necessarily how you're writing it. So Ian, one thing I remember you mentioning to us earlier was the fact that you also play instruments or used to play instruments. And I always find it interesting because it seems like so many technologists that we speak to have a musical background. And I, I, I find that, you know, there must be a connection there right, between the different sides of the brain, right, that we're using. So, so tell me a little bit about your musical background. Like, what types of instruments do you play? I'm a bass guitar player. I mean, that if, if you ask me what type of musician are you, definitely a bass guitar player. I mean, I am so at home on the bass guitar. I just absolutely love the bass guitar. My friend just texted me that Primus is playing in his town where he lives. And I booked a flight to go and see Primus because he works at the club. He's a bouncer there. And I'm like we're gone. We are going to see Les Claypool. So, um, but I still, I write songs on the acoustic guitar and I write lyrics and I sing and I, um, compose, um, songs using my, my digital audio workstation and my Cubase software and that sort of thing. So, you know, I, I, I love writing music and I love writing songs, but I'm a bass player. Are you self-taught or have you, did you get like classically trained by, um, in musical school? A little bit of everything. I mean, I started off just a bass guitar and some Metallica tablature books and just tried to pick it out. And then, um, just learning songs from other people in school who knew how to play music and just kind of doing little impromptu ba bands and that sort of thing before it became more formal, but then, you know, I was in jazz band and I played bass and jazz band, um, but didn't get a lot of instruction from the teacher. It was more like, here's your part. Now you got to figure out how to, how to play it. Um, took some lessons, some private lessons, like when playing rock songs and that sort of thing, but definitely no, um, actually I should say in, in college, I did take, um, two or three lessons on the double bass using a German bow. Um, but I didn't go too far with that. So you also have a nonprofit that also helps local school bands, right? So yeah, it was it was 2008 and I was just kind of ruminating on some different ideas and I wanted to do something but I wanted to do something that I knew something about. So something that I knew something about was what it meant to grow up in a very remote rural area and not have anything to do, not have anything around and no one to do anything with. And knowing that because I was in band, I got to have a lot of fun experiences and socialize and bond with people my age and have a lot of great memories and get to play music, which was really fun. And then I thought about how there's a lot of band programs like the one that I was in that don't have any budget and don't have money for instruments. But if a kid wants to be in band and the, and the, and the band program doesn't have an instrument, these areas are places where there's household incomes of still like $16,000 roughly. And they, they don't have the money $200 to rent an instrument for the kid to be in school. So I started marching mountains to try to find 
instruments that are in people's closets and their attics not being used and let people donate them to my 501c3. So, you know, the benefit to them is that they are doing something right. good, but then they can also get a tax deduction. And then I will identify schools that have that sort of um, need and get them to them. So I've been doing that for almost 10 years now, I guess nine years. I started in 2008 and have have received a lot of instruments. Lots of instruments have gone to a lot of schools and I've received just a lot of really nice emails from band directors who have said, you know, one little girl said that today was better than Christmas when she got the flute that she was going to get to be in band and, and things like oh that. And just like, just really heartbreaking stuff. Yeah. What's the response from the community been like? Have you been able to get a lot of instruments and a lot of support from, from folks to get to these schools? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's about, it's a manageable size. I mean, I think from talking to me, you can tell I'm involved in a lot of things and um, the, the nonprofit sure. has stabilized to a manageable amount. I mean, I get about 20 or 30 instruments a year and then I work, I have relationships with some band directors and I can check in with and see how they're doing and get stuff to them. But it's, you know, it's a lot more of a low key sort of thing, just more really, truly, a, you know, a, a grassroots, just sort of under the radar type of organization. I mean, it's nothing, nothing huge, but you know, it's still effective in the sense that I kind of calculate if each instrument gets used for five years, on average, which it probably gets used longer than that would be my guess. But let's just say five years and um, each year that it's used, that's a year that a kid was in band. You know, it doesn't take very many instruments to where you've provided a thousand years of band to kids. And that feels pretty effective to me. You know, for me, I, I used to play an instrument when I was a child, and I know how expensive instruments can be. So, pretty sure these kids really appreciate the work that you're doing and the work that your um, your nonprofit is doing to to help them out. So, if if I'm in Wisconsin, mm -hmm. how do I reach out to you? Where can I find you? Like, what information do I need to be able to contribute instruments to your nonprofit? If you're in the Twin Cities area, you can drop them off at Midwest Musical Imports. Um, on uh, Hennepin Avenue in Minneapolis, East Hennepin Avenue. And you can go to mmimports.com for their address, or you can go to marchingmountains.org and click um, the donate an instrument link with their address. But that, that's the most direct way. So that that is the most, that's the easiest way of doing it. That doesn't really require a lot of scheduling or, or anything. Otherwise, there's two places you can ship them to. You can either ship them to me or I have actually my mom. She still lives in West Virginia and um, instruments that get shipped there go to schools in Appalachia. And then the instruments that I pick up here are the ones that I've been um, getting to schools here and in Minnesota. It's just it cuts down on the shipping costs. I was shipping instruments from here right. to other schools and it just the costs are shipping costs are really expensive so ian i definitely want to again thank you for being on the show um before we cut off you know do you have anything you want to let our listeners know about 
you know, your books, your books that are out now, any books you might be publishing in the future, you know, generally where they can they find you online and websites and that type of information? Sure. So I started um, my blog earlier in the year. You can either get to it through psychologistcoder.com or just my name, ianfelton.com. Um, but there I'm basically writing about IT through the lens of psychology. And there's also links to my, my book there and hopefully eventually my books there and things like that. So that is definitely the best place to find me. Great. Awesome. And what we'll do too is we'll make sure we put links in the show notes. So everyone that's listening could definitely go and check out Ian's book. Make sure you go buy it from on Amazon, right? Is there, is it anywhere else other than on Amazon? Like where else can we um, get the book? You, you can get um, The Coding Samurai on Amazon and both paperback and ebook, Kindle. But that's it. I mean, you can buy it from me, but we're, we're probably not going to bump into you. <laughs> you can give them a signed copy. There you go. That'll be fantastic, actually. If you see me at a conference or something, um, I will probably have some books on me and you can buy it straight from me and I will give you a 10% discount. Oh, nice. That's awesome. <laughs> oh, boom. But he'll pay. He'll charge ten percent for the uh, for the autograph. So <laughs> no, that's why I give ten percent off. Yeah, oh. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Nice. Well, Ian, again, man, thank you so much for being in the show, man. We definitely appreciate your time. Yeah, it's been great. I really, really appreciate it. We'd like to thank Ian for being a guest on the show. It was great to have the opportunity to chat with him. If you like the show, please tell your friends and leave a comment on the website at awayfromthekeyboard.com. Also, remember to check us out on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash AFTKpodcast and on Twitter at AFTKpodcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Cecil Phillip and Richie at Jarris. That's J-O-R-R-I-S-S. You can subscribe to the show via the website, SoundCloud, Google Play Music, or on iTunes. And if you really want to know what makes us tick, sign up to our newsletter where you get extra episodes and behind-the-scenes access to Away From the Keyboard. Next on Away From the Keyboard, we'll have author and public speaker, Laura Hogan. Yeah, that was a fun episode. I like that one. Yeah, she had a lot of really good tips for us, and I'm looking forward for everybody to listen to this episode. Yep, yep. So we'll see you next time. Bye. to thank you for listening to away from the keyboard as a reminder we will have new episodes each and every week you can interact with us on twitter at aftk podcast or at awayfromthekeyboard.com hasta luego
Yeah, anything. Anything sounds good. Yeah, no Game of Thrones spoilers, too. <laughs> uh, I, I, I can't. I'll try. You know, it's when you, you go into the office. Well, I used to have this problem when I went into the office. But it's like when you go into the office and, and everybody's talking about it. And you're just like, no, shut up. I don't want to hear about it. Like, I haven't watched it yet. It's rude. But now it's like, but now it's like Twitter and my my YouTube uh, subscription feed. I mean, it's like every everyone's trying to spoil me, right? Maybe not intentionally, but everywhere I look now, it's like ESPN is trying to spoil me. It's crazy, man. It's you it's know what I right. think is fair. I think if you can go seven days after the episode is aired, then you can talk about it publicly. I think that's fair. I think prior to that, then you shouldn't say anything well, about it. Well, we just we just started watching it. Um, I would say about three or four weeks ago. Like, I had like not seen an episode, and we started binging it about a month ago. So, you guys really are bringing up a philosophical question, then, which is: Is it society's responsibility to protect the uninformed, or is it the individual who is uninformed to protect themselves from knowledge which could harm them? That's a good question. Honestly, I think it might be a little fifty-fifty. I think um, make Westeros great again. <laughs> I think it's a little fifty-fifty. I think you know you should be sensitive to people that don't know. You know, give them a spoiler alert if 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 need be or anything like that. But um, if you're, you know, if you know that hey, well, it's okay. It's been two weeks now, or it's been a little while now. Like it's it's kind of your fault if you haven't watched it yet. Uh, I don't know about that, right? So I mean, I always go back to Empire Strikes mm-hmm. Back, right? I mean, it's been what. 30 plus years or whatever since it came out but i'm still not going to tell someone who hasn't seen it oh you should have seen star wars by now oh by the way luke is darth vader is luke's father you know i mean it's i i'm yeah i just don't want to do that no i get it i get it i get it i mean you shouldn't be an asshole about it but so so there's two sides of it right there's one where i'll I'll be okay okay you haven't seen the movie yet i won't talk to you about it right me and you talking but if you're in a crowd of people and then they decide to talk about, you know, whatever episode, movie, whatever, then I think it's up to you to excuse yourself and walk away. 